Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. And we're back for another episode of In the Landscape. And we're delighted if you're back too, to listen to a new episode. Thank you to our listeners who come back every week. We're just thrilled that you're here. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who is finding us perhaps for the first time on this, uh, I believe our 35th episode. Wow. Yeah. I think we've been at it for a little more than half a year. 30 something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) People remember that television show. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, some of my favorite podcasts are in the hundreds and I'm just amazed by, you know, what it would take to just keep it going year after year. So I hope we'll have that much creativity and inspiration in mm-hmm. us so that we can stay here for a little while because it's been a lot of fun right it's a discipline though these. to continue oh, it sure it's yeah there's definitely we have plenty of content it's the discipline of yeah making sure we get an episode out each week right the travel and other all the obligations one has <laughs> <laughs> yes we're not at the stage where this is our career we're we're enthusiastic podcasters we hope the show comes across as well researched and professional and interesting and mm-hmm. entertaining but we do have a landscape design practice to manage in the meantime. And uh, that has you traveling quite a bit, actually, this spring. We're coming into in North America, in the Northern Hemisphere. Spring is the, people get spring fever. Mm-hmm. They really, people call you with almost no matter what the scale, the landscape, commercial, private, that there's a lot of excitement. Yeah, we know? like the landscape. We're just ready to burst forth right. from our wintry <laughs> homes and, and get active and And it is a good time for dormant season pruning, as you've mentioned before. Uh, A lot of people are reaching out about their apple trees and they're anticipating the fruit season, which is fantastic. We do have, if you're coming to us a little farther down the line in our episodes and you'd like to go back. Yeah, I'm not always sure how they're listed on the different platforms, but, but one can go back and kind of search for previous topics if there's something you're curious about. And, and we did have a whole fruit pruning episode mm-hmm. and uh, there's there's a lot of shaping you can do now before the tree is trying to invest all its energy in fruit production right so. there's a youtube video on our, oh, yeah. on our channel too yeah definitely oh and it has some beautiful pictures and some some shots of you in a gorgeous orchard in montana so mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty country yeah it's something i mean i do love podcasting as a medium i listen in my car when i'm driving around but of course the the video and the Instagram and all of that is really great for, mm-hmm. you know, getting the imagery that we're talking about. Right. Which brings us <laughs> to today's topic, which is all about color. And <laughs> we haven't broached this topic yet, almost because it is one of the most obvious places to start. I, I don't know if that <laughs> sounds weird, but, you know, I'm sure there are lots of other resources all about color. But we're at the point where we think we'd like to talk about it through the lens of some of the ideas that we have discussed already. So having a program, thinking about lighting, four season interest. So there's a lot of topics we've sort of addressed in terms of landscape design in particular. And now it's time to roll color back into the into the concept. Right. And Although we're, we're very fond of green. I mean, green is a great <laughs> color. And I guess you've said one of the one of the colors that the human eye can distinguish the most. Right. I remember that from graduate school that we learned we can see more shades of green than any other color is what the science, the science says. So it's more than let's say 22 shades. So there's, there's more shades in that possible, but it's hard for us to discern is that's the mm-hmm. information I have. Hypothesis is that if 
Imagine we were hunters and gatherers in nature. I mean, the shade between plants, it can be very subtle between a beneficial plant and a poisonous plant, or between fruit that might be ripe and fruit that's rotten. Absolutely. Yes, I'm sure there's some evolutionary background to our how we see color. Mm-hmm. And of course, not every human being sees color in the same way. So we're going to be talking in terms of the most common way of seeing color, you know, Roy G. Biv. <laughs> and <laughs> right. uh, for anyone who sees color differently, if you want to give us any feedback about how you see color and how that informs your design, we'd be thrilled to hear it. We love that difference of perspective and that there's something special in not seeing everything the same way. So uh, so we will kind of go along the traditional spectrum and any variety out there, we'd be curious to hear. Right. I mean, there's different types of way colors produced. So there's Roy G. Biv, there's on your computer monitor, that's its light is coming through the color that you're seeing it. Then there's like printed material, a magazine, poster, that's usually CMYK. And so that's like four color process. Which we all know from our little color printers at home and having to change out the, right, the just, it won't print because just the magenta is getting low. And you're right. like, I don't even need magenta. I'm printing in black and white, but they have a, a you know scheme going to get, to get you to replenish. You know, with a printer, that's a good example. When one of those colors is low, it affects the way you see all the other colors because those colors yeah. are more or less, more or less being mixed or they're over they're overprinting. Oh yeah. And it certainly does get weird when something comes out from the printer and you realize that you're low in one color. You can kind of get a feel for what's missing aesthetically. It's like right. teal. It's like everything's teal instead of really true green all of a sudden. Of course, color has a lot to do with light. I recall being a younger student, we would go to this place in the San Francisco Bay Area called the Exploratorium. Mm. And playing with light and color was a huge part of the little experiments that you would do in this amazing sort of science, interactive science museum. And the idea that white light is actually the full spectrum of all the colors kind of merged together, and in particular, green, red, and blue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're little, you're taught that the primary colors are yellow, blue, and red. And I remember looking like really closely at the TV screen at the time, and it wasn't like the you know high definition TVs we have now. And you could see the tiny little squares that were like oh. a little blue strip, a little green strip, and a little red strip, and how that all sort of merged together to give you the impression of this wide range of colors. It's just Mm -hmm. amazing that it all comes from these different elements in the spectrum, essentially. There's a lot of science and physics behind why you see. So knowing just basic principles as a designer, remember in my undergraduate studies, uh, graphic design and two-dimensional design, we started to learn about, we really started with black and white and learning overlap, contrast, silhouette form so you really then you add color or when you learn to to draw or paint starting with black and white in a way color can you get so much instant effect from it it's so it's a little misleading Mm. you have to really understand the underlying sort of like architecture of of seeing an outline seeing a silhouette seeing detail and then once you understand that form more or less then colors added it's not an end in itself. It seems much simpler than it really is. Just plop down 
some red chairs in the middle of a landscape and it looks amazing. There's a little more people, great designers can do that. There's a little more to it. Mm. Like it looks easier than it is. <laughs> well, and it's so interesting. You mention black and white and shape and silhouette as being the precursor to our then thought about color, because it's actually apparently how babies color sense develops that they don't see color when they're really little. And so, so if you, some of the great, baby books out there are black and white oh, and right. really, you know, what makes them special is the form of the pictures that mm -hmm. people have included. So that's just kind of a fun way to, as adults, maybe thinking about this concept to kind of thumb through some of those baby books and think about like, what are the forms that seem to appeal to our, you know, our little baby brains and right. that can be a source of endless fascination. All the color books for babies are I think still fascinating at this age. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've mentioned our son is still pretty young, a toddler and the way colors are grouped so that you learn like, oh, this is purple and it will have all the purple objects. And there's something very satisfying about those books. You're just like, ooh, color. Yeah, it's, it's lush. <laughs> yeah. It creates a great emotional response. That's yeah. more or less beyond your control. You're going to feel, I mean, there's a certain jewelry store that has that certain blue, that, that Robin's egg blue. I mean, it creates... Whether you like it or not, it like creates an emotional response to see that color and it triggers, oh, that's <laughs> there's psychology behind that. Mm. Like the effects, like red tends to create excitement. So for safety, you know, think of like emergency responders, those colors are like high contrast. A hospital emergency, the sign is in red. Then there's famous gardens, there's like the at Sissinghurst, there's the the white garden. And mm. then some of the other great dictionary might be a red garden or like what they call like a hot garden where so those gardens create different emotions and of course nature itself so the reason we're talking about color in terms of the landscape is that nature has is using color in very specific adaptive ways right mm -hmm. so the hot and the cool might that be governed by the region of the world that you're in like i think of hot tropical colors and wildflowers can certainly be bright, but in cooler temperatures, maybe it's not, it's like a different palette. It's not as saturated necessarily. Yeah. Maybe to think of the origins of color is wild nature. And so why are they creating flowers? It's to pollinate, to like further that species. So it, and it's to attract pollinators. It's to attract creatures, including us that are going to. Seed dispersal. Right. Seed dispersal. <laughs> like eat the fruit. Yeah. You know, there's the biology, I guess, that would, if I'm in the right camp, of the parts of our, of our eye, which there's the rods and the cones. So the rods, which are long, those can see the, like more or less black and white. So those are when, it's, when the lighting is very low, that's the part of the eye that's seeing. So as a designer, it's, let's say there's gardens we design where the, the residents are seeing the garden in the evening. Maybe they work during the day or they're not using the garden during the day. Or in some climates, it's too hot to be outside for some of the day. <laughs> so if it's an evening garden, you'd want it to be pretty high contrast. So like deep reds, when the lighting is low, they'd turn almost black. Mm -hmm. They would be hard to see. Like a deep red next to a green leaf, it's going to almost disappear. Where a lighter color, so white, some of the light violets, some of those at, at sunset are almost iridescent. So mm -hmm. even after sunset, some of those lighter colored flowers and foliage, you can still see. 
Yeah. And as I understand it, that is the red and green, which is almost what we think of from a typical garden or typical flower is something that some people do have a challenge seeing the contrast. It Mm -hmm. just is the, whatever the relationship is, those colors are hard to distinguish. So getting creative about our colors is really great. I also understand if we human beings could see the full spectrum that say insects are seeing, There'd be even more colors to the plants that we see. So there's oh, some, right. some wavelengths that human beings can't see that are almost show up as like landing strips for insects, mm. they think. I mean, I'm the sure flower. we don't know how insects actually perceive it necessarily, but I think they've identified this relationship between the, you know, the way the insect eye works and these other embedded colors that just don't exist. Like sort of like being able to see in black light and things stand out in a different way. And then colors fade. So you think of, there's a Mexican restaurant we like going to here in Houston. And so red fades pretty quickly in the sun. And this restaurant has a, has a marquee and it's, it's not old. You can tell it's, it's not deteriorating structurally, but that red fades in certain climates. Some colors are going to fade quickly. And I will say, I have not even noticed this <laughs> marquee, so that tells you who the designer is. But I tell you, every time aircraft gets close, I'm the one who hits the pause button on the record because we are, I'm the audio person to a certain extent. There's, so there's like a practicality. There's selecting, well, plants. There are flowers that will fade in color, which is pretty normal. It's generally a normal process. And then selecting materials furniture, fencing, let's say stone, brick, walkways, other structures, paint. There are colors that are more or less known to fade. So that's quite a, like for a wrought iron fence, there's different treatments. There's, there's painting, which is, which is what's commonly done. It's the least expensive. The most permanent, which is the most expensive, is powder coating. And so when I'm educating the client, that, well, this is twice as much to, to, to powder coat this surface, but there's, there's no fading. It's really, it's not likely to chip. It's going to be color fast. It's more or less, as I understand, it, it's like cooked on. Or if you think of in a garden, there's, you have ceramic vessels and pots that are glazed. That color is really not going to change. Mm, that's a good point. So it's when you're selecting the, mater- the various elements in the garden to really think the cost could vary a lot, but the lifespan something costs three times as much but it lasts for 20, you know, lasts 20 times longer. And then it's a good value. Well, and there's also designing with the change of color in mind. So we certainly have a whole episode on fall foliage, which is the most anticipated color change. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, the chlorophyll starts to dissipate in the leaves and then it actually is revealing other color that was always there. And of course, I'm mindful of, we have that beach episode where we talk about kind of like coastal architecture and the cedar is it the cedar shingles right that when you put them on there they look like beautiful fresh wood and then of course they're going to change over time and weather into that sort of silvery gray but that Mm -hmm. silvery gray then is the iconic color it's almost like the fresh wood color looks wrong because you're waiting for its patina same with copper fixtures and then even if we're just talking plants i know there's there's a particular hydrangea that you that you love that has the bright white panicles mm-hmm. and a little bit of, I think a little bit of pink on it. So I don't know which species that is, but they're big. Well, it's like, like the, the uh, paniculata, which yeah. is the variety, the, like the big category. Uh-huh. And then 
like limelight is mm-hmm. one part of a there's strawberry vanilla there's a whole yeah it's like ice cream flavors there's a lot well, and then the beauty of it is that it does again the flowers fade the color changes it gets kind of like a little bit of a gold pink like this mm. rosy gold almost in the dried in the dried leaves and those All are right. gorgeous through a certain period of time and I, I think grasses as well so planning for the shift of color whether it's throughout the time of day or throughout the season is something I mean, it's great if you can do it well. It's actually something to be mindful of, though. Mm-hmm. And then you actually get more out of the material that you've selected. That's a really good point. Yeah, the, the built objects may change in color over a considerable period of time. So that's something to factor in. Then the plants over the course of the growing season are going to change. So they're a plant that's more or less in, in all four seasons is going to still work like in our our townhouse garden in New York, there were boxwood, one of my favorites. And so during the summer, they are inconspicuous. You don't really even know they're there. And then come winter, they become very prominent. Mm-hmm. And so having elements like that, it could be the structure of the garden. And then as things, I mean, there's some flowers. Is it? I get some of these, there's Shasta daisies, black-eyed Susans, cone flowers. Cone flowers, to my mind, even... When they're more or less dead, there's still like an interesting architecture. Mm-hmm. There's some plants after they've flowered and they're more or less dormant are not so appealing. They can look really messy mm-hmm. and maybe, or maybe the color, there's some perennials or grasses when they're more or less dead. It's still interesting. Mm-hmm. Like the hydrangea, those, the panicles, it turns almost like a, like a sandy color, mm-hmm. blondish color. So you have to have something new kind of growing up to replace the things that do not look as good or plant with the idea that what is left over could have interest for a while. So there's a way to do it sort of either way. You can have things kind of fading and and diminishing as some other item is kind of coming into its prime, but you're still going to want to be mindful of the color relationships as those kind of ebb and flow. Mm -hmm. And there are plants... There are reblooming daylilies. Daylilies are popular with some people. So some of the reblooming plants, which would be daylilies, roses, hydrangeas, there's a, a fancy word is romantin, which means it's the plant reblooms on its own. So those, it's like a rolling, there's always, there's flowers that are emerging, then ones that are waning. They always look pretty good and they're pretty low maintenance. Mm-hmm. The other extreme would be plants that look great. And then when the flower dies, it's pretty unappealing and they have to more or less be deadheaded. It's higher maintenance. So, mm. so that's all part of the, of the design process. So in thinking of the science of color, there's a couple, I, I guess it's almost like pop culture references that we're thinking in terms of how light is reflected off of an object and how it's then received by the eye and mm-hmm. interpreted by the brain as a color. And there's, I'm sure our listeners know of this, but every time I see it in pictures, I'm just like, it boggles the mind. There's a, a t- paint of some kind that oh. they created on accident, apparently, that is the blackest black. I think mm. it's called Vanta Black, V-A-N-T-A. And it's like carbon nanotubes or something that just completely suck in the light. So it's that sort of like proof that black is maximum absorption. Like mm-hmm. it's the absence of light rather than a color in a way. And it just renders shapes 
completely formless. So you don't, you're not able to distinguish any definition oh. on the shape because there is no shadow. There's no shadow, no contrast. And mm-hmm. so contrast, I think, kind of like we were saying at the top of the episode, is an important part of color. And then also the reflective nature of color. So I'm sure there are more like matte colors and maybe even glossier colors, p- perhaps even in in nature. Right. Know? Like the finish is important. How yeah. you're going to like where you are in the world, which would depend on the angle of the sun. Like further you get to the poles, the more, the lower on the closer to the horizon are. When you're, when you're near the equator, the sun is overhead more of the time. So that would affect how you see light, what colors would stand up, the time of day that you use the space. Mm-hmm. You know, in a beautiful setting, there might be an area where you have your coffee and the sun's coming up. And then that area is in the shade. And then there might be an evening garden. Where the, maybe there's a sunset. And it's, even shadows have color. Like if you are mm-hmm. watercolor painter or something, you know that as you're adding shadow to the forms in the picture. And I think, although I could be wrong, but I was told that if it's cool light, the shadow should be warmer in the painting. And if mm. it's warm light, then the shadow is cooler in the painting. And I don't know if that effect carries over into our landscapes, but it, it might since we're trying to sort of represent what we see. Right. I, and the I other, can imagine that. Yeah. The other pop culture reference, of course, is the dress. The blue. The, well, yeah. The, the it was either like it? blue and black, or I always saw it as white and gold, but in shadow. Mm-hmm. That the shadow can actually alter the shadow and then what colors are next to can actually alter the way we perceive the colors, which is just fascinating to me. And very strange that, you know, we don't all see, I mean, of course, of course we don't, but we don't all see the same way. So your color sense, I guess what I would say, especially if you're hiring a designer to help you, is to really see what they have in mind and be sure that it matches your color sense. It's not to say that they, they are not, you know, the professional who kind of knows what they're doing, of course, but just because we have these variations in how we see, you just want to be sure that it works for you. Otherwise, you could be left with a landscape that looks amazing to the designer, but kind of washes out for you and your perceptions. Right. So it's, it's kind of a balance between trusting the professional and then trusting your own eyes, I guess, because you're the one who has to look at it. Right. That it's going to feel day. right to the end user Yeah. and buying, if there's going to be six planters in a space, ordering one, mm-hmm. and then maybe like creating a demonstration or mocking one up. So you have one, you're, there's going to be a hydrangea tree and some ivy and some annuals. Well, because you, what you did recently in a, in a landscape was install a fence and it was going to be painted a gorgeous blue, but it was a blue that had to be very, very specific because so much of the fence is shaded. Oh, right. You know, and you, you as the designer were very mindful of this reality that it was going to be in shade for a great part of the day. And so you still wanted it to have the pop that it was intended to have. Right. The richness. Yeah. Like if there's, if, they, if it was sound... If it's quiet, you don't need much sound to hear. If it's louder, then you need more. And, mm-hmm. it, and it can be like that with color. If there's, depending, it's all situational in a way. And then the material, that coastal project, there's going to be a wrought iron fence, which is going to sort of be in a French style with crossbars. And, and then there may be a gate that's going to mimic the dormers on the house. So that we went back and forth with the clients some. They love that French blue. It's going to be this wrought iron fence is going to be public. And so that might be too conspicuous. So black mm. would be very traditional. 
like a mushroom or like a darker, a gray that would have richness. And mm-hmm. so it's sort of situational, where are you going to see the color? And then what material it's going to be on a wrought iron fence that makes a difference as opposed to wood. So having like a French blue wrought iron fence on a streetscape, that might be a little much, you know, it's like having yeah. whipped cream on your face. It's like, <laughs> well, it's kind of like, um, cause I was thinking as we were researching this episode, I was asking you about Pantone and who they are and like mm-hmm. how they decide what color is the color of the season. And, and I think we can all kind of picture in our mind's eye, like a 1970s kitchen with an avocado refrigerator and the burnt uh-huh. oranges and the bread. And I don't know why, like today, it just seems like those colors are all wrong unless you really, I mean, you know, if you, I love the sort of kitschy vintage of it, but you're like, how did this get to be the color scheme? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and should we look to classic examples or check in with whether there's like a historical society, if it's, if it's an historical neighborhood, perhaps mm-hmm. there are even rules about what colors you can have. You know, how, do, how does color sort of get agreed upon by the powers that be in the design field? Yeah, having colors that fit in. So I don't advocate being boring or, or towing the line with the status quo, but it should be contextual. What's in, the, in some of these like well-known coastal areas of, of South Carolina, there are more or less like resort islands. And then there's in the Northeast, there's Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket. So interacting with designers in, in those communities, some of those communities have, there is a color palette. So it's the homes in the Charleston area, some of these islands. I think Kiowa is one of them. There's a palette. And so the palette is made up of the plant in the natural landscape, the uh, live oaks, the grasses. So there's beautiful, delicious colors. And so those are the choices for those homes. So when you, when you squint, if you're on the beach and you're looking back at the homes, it's, there's interesting architecture. It's not garish. It's not like a lipstick red that could detract from the landscape. So it's this sort of holistic. And on, I think on Martha's Vineyard, it was similar. There was a, there was a range. So you can, there's lots of room for expression, but this is the range. And so it's people working collectively to maintain beauty for the enjoyment of everybody. Well, and I think it's important to bear in mind too, uh, one of the things we've talked about quite a bit, especially with regard to four season interest, is that color is not just flowers. It's not just annual beds. Mm-hmm. Um, although, especially if you're in those like European parks in the summer where they're, you know, planted for the season. It's oh, right. Like, oh, it's like, so great. <laughs> like it was a Luxembourg Gardens. Yeah. The French, I mean, it's, they just have this collection of hot color, which would sort of break the rules. Like, how can these all work? But it's done so expertly. Yeah, absolutely. It's exciting because you can use the foliage often has color in variegation and the bark of the red stem dogwood, I think right, is, red dogwood, yeah, right. yes, <laughs> is one of those. So yeah, it's, it's just an exciting adventure to kind of figure out what goes well together. Now, of course, we're not the first people to discuss like a color wheel and how you want opposing colors. On the color wheel, there's lots of visual references that could probably help you in this process. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we just kind of wanted to talk about how color works in the process. And when you have complementary colors, those are going to attract a lot of attention. So that's when you have, let's say, purples and yellows next to each other, reds and greens. It's definitely possible. It's going to really draw your attention. 
When you see that in wildflower landscapes, it's often like purples, yellows, maybe some oranges and reds, but mm-hmm. and whites. And I think it's so, you know, you stand out to the right pollinator and things like that. Right. So to pick carefully, it's like using like a symbol, you know, in an orchestra. There's definitely a place for it. But when it's all banging symbols, it can be painful. <laughs> so, so Selective editing. Like to pick carefully and yeah. to, I haven't tried things out. You know, let's try, there's going to be a large perennial bed. Let's buy a dozen perennials and assemble that palette. See if that works and and then fine tune it before the whole garden is installed. Or at the nursery. I've seen my mom and she has great color sense picking out the plants and putting them together on the oh, cart. Right. And then kind of mixing and matching depending on what she's going for in the garden. And then sometimes you get surprises because you'll get volunteers that don't match the bed and you're like, how to move these guys. But, you know, that kind of mixing and matching in the nursery can be a fun process. All right. So thank you for listening to another one of our Back to Basics episodes. We don't cover everything and not in as much depth as we can go into in future episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe we'll talk about hotbeds at some point (laughs) or just greens at another. And I think it'll be an exciting opportunity for us to delve further into color. But definitely think about the way you perceive color and how the light makes a difference and mixing and matching and testing it out. Because color does matter. If it's done wrong, it's certainly one of the things you probably notice before anything else. Right. Like, oh, those do not go together. When you're out in the world with the advent of, well, if I have a smartphone with them, just snapping a photo of combinations that you like. And that could be in an unlikely, it could be a supermarket display that happens to have certain colors together. So we appreciate you tuning in for another week. We will be back next week for another great episode in the landscape. We hope you get out sometime soon to enjoy your own landscape. And we look forward to hearing from you if there's anything you'd like to share with us. Anything at all. That's right. We welcome (laughs) questions, comments, thoughts. Rates, reviews, (laughs) subscriptions, all of it. We appreciate it every bit. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.